coffee isn't just a drink, it's who you are. We are Little Green Hive, and we're here to serve that perfect cup of coffee made just for you. We're women-owned and locally sourced. Our mission is to provide the best product for our customers, as well as strengthen our community. From fair trade coffees and teas, to breakfast, lunch, and smoothies, we have everything you need to start your day off right. Come visit us in downtown Roanoke, Grandin Village, and now at the Daleville Town Center, Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. It is everywhere. Um, you know, everybody thinks it can't happen. It's happening, it's here, it's not going away. While we were caught up in the rising tide of the COVID-19 pandemic, the undercurrents of this nation's opioid epidemic continue to pull people under. And people that I knew, names that I was familiar with, started coming up a lot more in conversation. I was like, oh my God, are you serious? I know people that I went to school with that overdosed and died. Appalachia has been among the hardest hit places in our nation during this opioid crisis. Southwest Virginia is no exception. And some people and who had many years of recovery were relapsing from the stress of the pandemic. Job losses, isolation, people were overdosing alone with no one to Narcan them. While vaccines provide light at the end of the tunnel for the pandemic, how are communities staving off the power of the poppy? This episode of Hometown Stories, part one of our series on bridging the great health divide, brings a fresh look at Appalachia's opioid crisis and the bridges people in our communities are building to bring hope to those who need it most. Uh, hopefully we can put this pandemic behind us and we can get back out there and make sure that we uh, put this opioid crisis to rest. Michaela Curran and I are standing in the backyard of her aunt's home in Bedford, Virginia. It's late afternoon and the evening bugs have been swarming us. Come on, Chance! Michaela, in her early 20s, is standing at the edge of a fence, clucking at this gorgeous white horse in the pasture behind the house. He's standing stock still, just looking at us. And he's not the only Chance staring Michaela square in the face. And, you know, I got a job, I got a car, <laughs> I got everything I could ever want right in front of me. I just got to reach out and grab it. Today, Curran is clean. A young woman in early recovery, she's been abstaining from a life on the streets of Roanoke City for a chance at a fresh start. Been in the area my whole life. I've traveled out of state many a times, but I've always come back here. <laughs> this is home. <laughs> Michaela tells me she's gained weight since she stopped using drugs in October. She likes that her cheeks are no longer sunk in and her hair is healthier. I feel like a lot stronger of a person. I'm happy I'm surrounded by my family again. I did miss them. I missed myself <laughs> going through all the, the stuff that I went through, but I'm back here now, one foot in front of the other. 
Her aunt's farm is a haven away from a drug addiction that pulled her down a few years ago. Michaela graduated from high school in 2015. Not too long after, she had her son. And not too long after that, she began selling drugs, she tells me, to make money. But then she quit for a time. And then I, I had a friend offer me a little bit of uh, methamphetamines and I was up for three days and didn't didn't stop doing stuff. I had the whole house cleaned and I just, I was like, wow, this makes me actually do stuff and it keeps me organized. I formed a pretty bad OCD after starting it and I never stopped. And Michaela says not long after that, she left home for the streets. With just a few belongings, she and her boyfriend made Roanoke City's Southeast neighborhood their home. Bouncing from house to house, walking the streets at all hours of the day, carrying our stuff with us. On the streets, Michaela saw the community's opioid crisis up close, too close, especially as the pandemic settled in. We're on the streets and, and people that I knew, names that I was familiar with, started coming up a lot more in conversation. I was like, oh my God, are you serious? I know people that I went to school with that overdosed and died. It is everywhere. Um, you know, everybody thinks it can't happen. It's happening, it's here, it's not going away. In Roanoke City, Lisa Vai is grasping at chances too. She works at Roanoke City's drop-in center along a busy commercial road. The office itself isn't anything fancy, but people can come get things like hep C and HIV testing, condoms, stuff like that. But several times a week, Lisa drives around town in a van, offering all of that stuff, plus a clean needle exchange as part of the harm reduction program. She's been doing this for a little over a year now and already has had 115 people sign up, including Michaela. In between getting clean syringes, getting injection sites treated, and being offered counseling and recovery services, the participants are painting Lisa a picture of what the pandemic has done to widen an already gaping chasm. Um, we're hearing from participants about friends that are dying. Um, so that really hits home when somebody comes to see you and say, you know, I just lost my friend yesterday. Um, so it's, it's very disheartening. I feel like it's a, a struggle that we are losing. And uh, we've lost a lot uh, for a small area these probably last, within the last six to eight months, we've lost a lot of people to the overdose of uh, opioids. In the Allegheny Highlands, Sheriff Kevin Hall has also seen the opioid crisis up close and remains worried for his community. Allegheny County represents a lot of communities up here. Downtown has a picturesque, if quiet, main street. High school football is huge, and everybody kind of knows everybody. This also means his own family's struggle with the opioid crisis is well known. Hall's son, Ryan, has been clean for three years now. After breaking his leg in a high school football game, Ryan became addicted to pills and later heroin. He circled between rehab and jail before finding a method and a church that stuck. He had been joining his father in dozens of classrooms, churches, and civic groups, sharing their stories in the hopes of saving a life. I joined them in a classroom in January of 2019. 
What time does class end? My freshman year is whenever I tried heroin for the first time. I, you know, I was on painkillers for probably about eight weeks. Think of someone like me, you know, middle class society and stuff like that, and it's touching every walk of life. There's help out there, and if you need help, all you gotta do is ask. Sheriff Hall told me then and now that doing those talks with Ryan means a lot to him. Not only because it strengthened their bond, but because he felt like they really were making a difference. And I mean, we were really helping a lot of people. And then um, the pandemic hit, kind of really at a bad time because I think we were really gaining a lot of momentum in the whole state of Virginia fighting the opioid crisis. Hall says Virginia State Police have been collecting data on overdoses too. He shared details from a February report on Division 6, which spans from his home in Allegheny County to as far south as Martinsville near the border with North Carolina. According to the data, state police in Division 6 recorded a 106% increase in heroin or opioid-related overdoses last year compared with 2019. And every single one of those overdoses in the Allegheny Highlands is a punch to the gut for his small rural community. This crisis does affect everyone. It doesn't matter if it's just small towns like what we have here even in the bigger areas that this crisis can strike and it can strike at any economic level, race, creed, religion, or whatever, it doesn't matter, it doesn't discriminate. From law enforcement to public health, services stretched thin had to turn their attention to COVID while the overdoses stacked up. But anecdotally, we understand that we're dealing with a bigger issue now than we did before the pandemic started. That's Nancy Bell over a sometimes glitchy Zoom call. Typically, I'll be talking with Nancy about COVID tests and vaccine clinics. That's because she's the population manager for the West Piedmont Health District in Martinsville. Pre-COVID, Nancy believes her team was doing pretty well at addressing the opioid crisis. In some cases, she says they were working with data to identify specific neighborhoods with high overdose rates. And then, of course, COVID hit, and we had to focus our efforts elsewhere and probably the most damning thing that happened was that we were no longer able to sit around the table and discuss at a granular level um, what was going on in the community. Appalachia has been among the hardest hit places since the opioid crisis began. In 2017, the Appalachian Regional Commission suggested a markedly higher overdose death rate for the region compared with the rest of the country, a country that continues to struggle. In December, the CDC reported 81,000 drug overdose deaths nationwide in the 12 months leading up to May 2020. And that, the CDC says, is the highest number of overdose deaths ever recorded in a 12-month period. And while it seems that overdose deaths were already on the rise, the CDC suggests the pandemic seemed to only accelerate the number of deaths. People were um, just swamped with folks who were relapsing. Beth Macy is the author of Dope Sick, a best-selling book published in 2018 that highlighted the toll of the opioid crisis in Appalachia. I asked Beth if she still keeps in touch with the people she wrote about in Dope Sick. She does. And she told me she's frequently connecting one expert to another. And their conversations over the last year 
Some of them have reported devastating setbacks. Some people and who had many years of recovery were relapsing from the stress of the pandemic. Job losses, isolation, people were overdosing alone with no one to Narcan them. Uh, the numbers aren't getting any better. That was Roanoke County Police Chief Howard Hall in May of last year, telling me that the number of deadly overdoses at that point was already double what it had been for all of 2019. In January, Virginia's chief medical examiner noted the Commonwealth recorded a, quote, enormous increase in fatal overdoses at the start of the pandemic. And while charts from the Virginia Department of Health show us that fewer Virginians went to emergency rooms in 2020, more people overdosing did. A VDH report shows a chart with the top three causes for unnatural deaths in Virginians, which are drug overdoses, car accidents, and gun deaths. Drug overdoses appear to take the lead by a lot. Preliminary data for 2020 suggests more than 2,200 drug overdose deaths statewide. That's hundreds more cases, hundreds more lives than were claimed the year before. And while 2020 data is preliminary, it's led the chief medical examiner to conclude in their report, 2020 will be the worst year on record by far for fatal overdoses in Virginia. But why? And that's, I hate it. I absolutely hated that people did that, but I'm one person. Michaela Curran has a theory. She points to locking state lines at the beginning of the pandemic, restricting access to heroin supplies in particular. And because it was harder to get more of it because the state line lock, they would start cutting it with fentanyl. And that's what caused a lot of the overdoses in the very beginning because people didn't know. They weren't being told, hey, you know, this is cut with this, so don't do this much. People would just sell it so they could get the money. That's a theory supported by the DEA's 2020 drug threat assessment. The agency says the availability and use of cheap and highly potent fentanyl has increased, noting that by combining just a small amount of fentanyl into heroin allows dealers to maximize profit by extending heroin supplies. We have never had a foe as formidable as fentanyl. And um, so that's what's driving the biggest increase in the deaths right now, and, it, and it's really scary. So you can say it's wrong to give people needles or whatever, but in an era of fentanyl, you know, this idea where we don't extend help, it's, it's just deadly. You could say, I'm all about tough love. I think we should let him hit rock bottom. Well, in an era of fentanyl, rock bottom too often is death. That's also what Chief Howard Hall told me his deputies were reporting in May of 2020. But Michaela and others believe fentanyl's not the only reason for the spike. People would start spending all their unemployment money. People get 700 or more a week, and it's just, that's $700 they're going to go drop on drugs every week. Add in isolation, depression, and anxiety. Lisa Vive says those are deadly combinations. You know, you're used to getting out. You're used to being with your friends. Um, when you're stuck by yourself, you're already depressed, and you're at a low point, and throw a pandemic on that, um, I, I would say depression um, and, and being isolated is a huge part of it. 
Sheriff Kevin Hall also noted that his deputies weren't able to do as much preventative work like traffic stops at the beginning of the pandemic, which he says could have caught traffickers transporting drugs. In his small, tightly knit community, he also believes isolation was a major factor. I worry about people that are right there on the teetering on the edge, things like this, the emotional trauma of the pandemic and not being able to to hang out with the people, not being able to go to movies or sporting events or other different things that they end up going back to that drug and, and getting themselves further down the road in that addiction. And once people are embedded in their addiction, Lisa Vi says getting them the help they need is still a struggle. The frustrating part is there are not enough resources, mental health-wise, recovery, treatment, to get the folks that are so ready to, to go into to that lot, you know, that style, and there are not enough resources. Phone call after phone call, I mean, we can spend hours trying to get these folks, and it's that, that frustration is just, it's just not there. Lisa Vi and Michaela say, even if you can find a spot, cost can be prohibitive. They should have more things that are more available for free. I'm not really a political person. I don't really know a lot about it or the laws or views of it, but if you know you can't get Medicaid, then you can't get anything, especially when it comes to a place for recovery. But as Beth Macy notes, some problems for those suffering from substance abuse disorder can't be solved with money. I still would say, if you asked me what the number one problem was, I would still say it was stigma, because everything you could everything comes under stigma. Back up in Covington. Sheriff Hall reiterates that he believes he and Ryan were making a difference with their classroom talks. And he felt that the drug court and the community services board working inside the jails also made a difference. As Virginia gets closer to a new normal, Hall would like to see more funding for those community services. Funding that could be coming soon. Now, the truth is, this is uh, a crisis that has its origins in our medicine cabinets and it goes right back to the uh, boardrooms and marketing offices of the pharmaceutical companies. Virginia's Attorney General, Mark Herring, told me the Commonwealth has scored some wins lately in settlements with drug manufacturers and marketing companies. One of those recent settlements with McKinsey & Company will bring nearly $13 million to the Commonwealth. Herring says McKinsey's work with Purdue Pharma contributed to the opioid epidemic in the Commonwealth, but the work continues. The Purdue case um, that we brought in Southwest Virginia has been put on hold because they filed bankruptcy. Um, And so now we are in that bankruptcy court trying to um, really advocate on behalf of people who have really been hit hardest. Uh, We filed suit against Teva Pharmaceuticals for their involvement. Um, And so, and there have been other companies that we've been investigating. Uh, We were investigating Mallinckrodt. They are now in the bankruptcy court. Um, We do have a tentative uh, settlement where involving $1.6 billion, but that is still tentative because it is still in bankruptcy and there's still more work to do there. While Herring's team fights in court, he says he wants to make sure the money that comes in goes out to the right places. This past legislative session, he worked to craft legislation creating an opioid abatement authority, a team of people who would funnel those dollars to the communities that need it most. So that money received from these court cases, whether it's by a verdict or whether it's by uh, a settlement, will 
come into the abatement fund and then be distributed uh, at various levels, local, state, regional, in order to abate this crisis for more treatment, uh, for more services, and instead of just going into the general fund and being spent on other, other priorities. I asked Beth Macy what she thought about that plan. She believes while that could be a start, she's hesitant about what the distribution will actually look like for those who treat people with substance use disorder, or SUD. My concern is that if we keep just doing business as usual with the way we treat people with SUD, that most of that money will get funded to either law enforcement or abstinence-only programs. When we know abstinence-only works in a very small minority for people with opioid use disorder uh, compared to medication-assisted treatment, which works with 50 to 60% or more to prevent death, overdose death. So I think we've got a lot of work to do with our structures. While Herring waits for the governor's signature on his abatement bill, community groups remain committed to tackling the problem at the ground level. My name is Nancy Bell. Um, I am with the Healthy Patrick County Coalition. That's Nancy again on a group Zoom call. She's talking about Patrick County, which is west of Martinsville, but still under her local health department's purview. Patrick County is rural and mountainous and beautiful. Since its hospital closed nearly three years ago, Nancy and other community leaders have been working toward improving health outcomes for the area, and they're putting particular emphasis on the opioid crisis. Um, as you all know, we just finished our... In early March, they consulted virtually with a team from Virginia Tech that's been doing work with community members in Martinsville and Henry County. Carlin Raffi, an assistant professor within Virginia Tech's Department of Human Nutrition, Foods and Exercise, led the presentation. We would like to present what we have done uh, to you all and talk a little bit about the process we used to get that done. The Engaging Martinsville team has been working for two years to find solutions and bring educational programs to local classrooms. In mid-March, they submitted an application to Virginia's Supreme Court to establish a drug court in the 21st Circuit. If approved, they aim to implement it as soon as October. Also in March, Piedmont Community Services installed a staff member at the emergency department at Sova Health, Martinsville's hospital. The staffer can offer people counseling and medication-assisted therapy. And the first three weeks, they connected with 15 people at the hospital, with seven of them following up for care. It's modeled off of the bridge program at Carilion Clinic, the big hospital in Roanoke City, which has reported success and a better understanding of the disorder in the two years since they initiated the program. The hospital reports an 80% success rate in getting people from the emergency room directly into treatment. I would say don't lose hope. We haven't forgotten about the opioid epidemic, and we are starting to realize some new money coming in from the drug manufacturers, and everyone's looking at it through a new lens of, of helping instead of ignoring. So I feel uh, very hopeful, and I, I'm hoping the community will continue to have the conversation with us and work together to try to support those who need us most right now. For Lisa Vi. Help doesn't always look like treating abscess wounds or exchanging needles to prevent infection. Sometimes, she says a simple check-in can do wonders. You know, they leave here with a feeling that somebody actually cares, which to me is huge when somebody said, you know, I, I, we had a guy this week and he said, I don't understand why you, why you do what you do. Well, we do it because we care and we want people to live. We don't want people dying. I got their phone numbers and they message me almost every day. And just 
just having them message me, hey, how are you doing? I thought about you. I just wanted to check in and see how you were. And it was just, it was like, wow. This total stranger is, is, is concerned for me and my health and safety. And it's just, it's amazing. It really is amazing what other people will do to try to help. There are hurdles to be sure. COVID persists, data lags, people disagree on the best methods for recovery, and lack of access to services, including the internet in some places, can thwart even the best intentions. But bridges, even if small and unsteady at first, are being built every single day. The bond Sheriff Hall has with his son Ryan, he says, is stronger than ever. They started trout fishing together during quarantine, and Ryan has a new baby boy, this country sheriff's first grandson. Pretty amazing. Uh, still get teared up about some of it when I start thinking about it. Where he was to where he's at now is just an amazing you know, story. It, it just gives you an example that how low you can go, but then where you can rise to. And, able to keep that. It's just amazing that he was able to do that. That's what we're hoping to try to save other people and bring them back to that level. Uh, hopefully we can put this pandemic behind us and we can get back out there and make sure that we put this opioid crisis to rest. Beth Macy says she's pleased also to see money from President Biden's relief package earmarked for addiction recovery services, which aims to set aside $30 million to support community-based overdose prevention programs, syringe service programs, and other harm reduction services. In the meantime, production of a Hulu miniseries version of Dope Sick is in full swing, which began filming in Sheriff Hall's neck of the woods with star Michael Keaton earlier this year. I think it'll bring more people to the issue just because of it being television. And then I think it will do in a, a quicker way what I attempted to do with the book, which was to show Americans that a lot of these folks got into trouble initially through no fault of their own. Not only that, but Macy is also working on a second opioid book focused on solutions to this devastating crisis. She expects it'll be on bookshelves by next summer. After I finished Dope Sick, it was so hard and so stressful and depressing at times. You know, it doesn't end on a super hopeful note. And I thought, oh, I never want to write about this again. Not doing it. And then as I went out and I started talking about it, I mean, I'm, I gave 150 speeches all over the country, all over the, the world, actually. And as I started to travel around, I started hearing about good things and really innovative things. And then I started wanting to, t oh, Mark, you should talk to Dr. Wildman to hear about what she's doing in Ithaca. Oh, you should hear about what Dr. Burton is doing in Roanoke. And I started sort of connecting people and that was cool. And then I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep following this because it, it took me so long to figure this out and where the gaps in care are and how we got here that I sort of felt it was my responsibility to keep it going and to write about how we're gonna get out of it. So, that, so that's what I'm doing now. While Macy continues to scout for solutions, so too will Rafi's team in Martinsville, leaning upon their local expertise for local people. But these communities have resiliency, they have the answers in the community, they just need to lock arms together and work united to solve their problems. In the meantime, 
Michaela is working on putting one foot in front of the other, for herself and for her son. He's about to be five, and she's so excited for him to head to kindergarten later this year. I'm working hard to get him back, because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't be here. He's, he is my world. He's the reason I'm alive. I, I look back on my band teacher now, and he said, don't ever say you can't. Until you try and try and try and fail and fail and fail, don't ever say you can't. You can, as long as you set your mind to it. It's a chance of a lifetime, and a chance that Lisa Vai says everyone deserves. Just because they use drugs, they're still part of our community. They still deserve our respect. hosted a roundtable with peer recovery specialist Christine Baldwin from Roanoke City's Hope Initiative and Dr. Robert Tressman, who's the chair of psychiatry and behavioral medicine at Carilion Clinic. We talked about information and guidance as well as resources for people looking for help for themselves or a loved one. That conversation will be featured in the next episode of our Hometown Stories series, Bridging the Great Health Divide. Hometown Stories is a production of WDBJ7 in Roanoke, Virginia. This episode was written and produced by myself, Leanna Scacchetti, and edited by Ben Riquelmi. We'll see you next time. Hometown Stories is sponsored by Little Green Hive, because coffee is personal. Locations in downtown Roanoke, Daleville, and Grandin.